Welcome back, everybody. Ivy Hurst is a true all-around cowgirl, known for her ability to jump on just about any horse and win on them. We caught up with her after her average win at the Prairie Circuit Finals last month. Her record includes countless wins, including a Reno Rodeo Championship, and we got to talk about her program, her story with her outstanding horse Diddy, and how she overcame his untimely passing, how she can win on so many types of horses, and even some ins and outs of buying and selling. We hope you enjoy. Before we get started, a couple of quick notes. If you're listening to this episode on the Patreon app or at patreon.com, you're going to hear the extended episode to include about 12 extra minutes where Ivy talks about mental toughness, how she shakes off the nerves before entering the arena, and some of her favorite wins. If you aren't listening on the Patreon app, download it today and search The Money Barrel. For just $5 a month, you'll gain immediate access to Ivy's extended episode and extended episodes with most of our Season 2 guests, plus bonus episodes and more. Don't forget to check out our partners at BarrelRacing.com and use code MONEYBARREL15 for your discount today. All right, Ivy, it's your turn in the saddle. This is The Money Barrel. Let's get started. One of our most requested guests is Ivy Hurst, and we are finally getting the chance to talk to her. We've tried to set this up a little bit over the last month, but perfect timing as she's just wrapping up her finals win at the Prairie Circuit Finals, and I'm just so excited to talk about it. So thank you for talking to me this morning. Excited to finally get to do this. (laughs) Tell us about the Prairie Circuit Finals, because we'll just start there, um, coming off that weekend, and it was kind of a wild ride for you, wasn't it? Uh, yes, um, I'm pretty known for keeping in some sail horses, and uh, I had the blessing this year of getting to ride famous Ellis Jazz all year uh, to put some credentials on him that were current so he could bring the money that we all knew that he was worth. And as luck would have it, he sold about three weeks before, which I knew was coming. I kind of had that in my mind all year to kind of be ready for that. And so it happened. And um, then I switched gears and I had another horse in that was really good. I placed on him at Pro Rodeos and I said, okay, I'm going to switch gears. I'm going to do this. And literally went out there to ride him that day. And I, I had my mindset on this horse. He's great. And he sold like the week before. And I was like, okay, now I'm really not sure what I'm supposed to be doing. So, um, I, Luckily, um, the Shields girls, I Riley and her sister, Sierra, Melby now, um, they've offered me horses in the past, and I actually called to inquire about the one that I rode a couple years ago there that I really, really loved, um, and they just kept telling me that I should ride this gelding, and not that I didn't want to or anything, I just knew the mayor, and I liked the mayor, and I, I asked like twice about the mayor, and they everybody just kept saying, you should ride this gelding, and I was like, well, I mean, obviously they know their horses, you know, blah, 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 and then... I started paying a little more attention, and the gelding won the derby at the Ardmore Barrel Fraternity, and that's no easy feat. You know, that's doing it. And I thought, okay, they know what they're talking about. I'm going to ride this horse. And uh, so she let me pick him up uh, Saturday before. I literally drove to her house, picked him up, went to the jackpot. There was probably like 200. He won it. Uh, drove him right back to her house because I didn't want anything to happen to him <laughs> under my care. So I took him right back to her, and then I picked him up. Thursday on my way over there and um, I'm kind of known for riding steady ready turny horses and he was the most honest fun thing and that's what they just kept telling me is he's easy he's easy he's easy and so like 
our circuit finals is great. They're really willing to work with us and we can get in the arena and do all the things. And so I just kept asking her, like, what do I need to do? Like, I have open arena. I have all this time. What do I need to do? And she literally just kept saying nothing. Like, just put him in a stall and let him rest. And I, I think I struggled more mentally with that than the runs or anything because I just, in my mind, I wasn't putting in the work. The horses that I've always had required lots of work. And so I pulled him out that night and I know people were kind of looking at me. Nobody really recognized him, you know, and, and then uh, he made that run the first night. And again, I've jump rode a lot of horses in my career and I've learned a lot of the questions to ask and, you know, do you use a back singe? Can I wear spurs? You know, all the, all the little tricky things that might get me bucked off or whatever, you know, and well, I never ever thought of asking somebody if they smacked their horse with the over under on the way home. And so he made a phenomenal run and I knew it was money. Um, and I read back and smacked him on the hip with my whip on the right side. And I didn't even really know what the heck was happening. And, um, he kind of hit him on the right side and it made him duck real hard out to the left. I thought in my mind, he couldn't find the alleyway. I thought, what in the world? He's scared of the bulls, you know, security horse. What do we got here? You know, when he ducked out kind of from under me, it made my feet go back. And I was literally like a stride from the timer. And I knew this was money. And so it made me gig him with my spur in his flank. Well, then he kind of hopped and bucked not box, but jumped, you know, and we made it through the eye and somehow we won second place. But, oh, wow. Um, I didn't really know. I was kind of embarrassed and I was like, oh, crap. So I started watching Riley's videos and I was like, oh, my gosh, she never kissed him, you know, like, what the heck? So she was the first person I called and I was like, hey, do you, you know, do you ever hit this horse? And she said, no, I can't. I have a bad shoulder. I don't whip any of my horses. So, I mean, I ran straight to my trailer and jerked that off my saddle and then it was on. But the horse, you know, he's, he's pretty well known and he kind of rings his tail when he runs and he he's not the prettiest horse to watch run and I think on night one I think I just kind of surprised people and um they're like gosh what is that because it's just not the most attractive thing you know as far as the tail ringing and sometimes I'm not gonna lie he excretes urine when he runs and that's very very unusual for a gelding and I kept telling people I don't care if he pees on the checks this horse is amazing you know and so I came back and won the next night by two tenths and then just barely squeaked in there for the win on the third night and pretty excited I've never got to qualify for the Ram National Circuit Final or the I guess it's called the NFR Open now so I'm very grateful that I have about eight or nine months to figure out what I'm gonna ride there (laughs) that's wild and had this what's this horse's name uh Cheyenne Fab he's a Frenchman um, Frenchman Fabulous out of a Dashwood Perks mare and has he ever been to rodeos before yeah, I think they've taken him to some stuff around here. Those girls are pretty punchy, and I mean, I, there ain't nothing that horse. He's seen cattle, I'm sure, wild hogs. There, they'll take their horses anywhere and do anything. There, and it was that was the cool part about that horse. Nothing phased him all weekend, you know. And he just was so easy about everything. And you know, come Saturday morning, which would have been going into round three, I was leading the average. I had a really good shot. The ball was in my court. I didn't want to lose it. And I, we got up Saturday, and all the girls were in there working their horses. And, I mean, I was on my three-year-old just piddling around, you know. And I thought, man, I just don't feel like I'm setting myself up to win tonight. Like, the the normal me would be in here working hard for this, you know. And so I called her again, and I said, okay, you know, we're two rounds in. This is, this is our deal, and it's ours to lose. And I said, do I need to at least just get on him and walk him around the barrels or something? And she said, don't touch him. Like, she said, Let, go hand graze him, let him rest. 
don't touch him. And I was like, oh, my gosh, it's so hard for me because it just, I've never been fortunate enough to ride a horse that easy. And so we pulled him out that night and he did it again. And I'm pretty sure he could have done it nine more times. He was that easy. So it was really fun. That's amazing. And I mean, way to go, like, listening to the owner because that is hard. If you're normally doing stuff and you almost feel like you're doing too little and you don't, you know, yeah. you, you want to go do something, but you didn't and you just let him do his thing and it paid off. It was going to be hard for me if I hit a barrel Saturday night and didn't put in that work. And that's what I was trying to prevent. You know, I just knew I had to go around the barrels and, you know, it just, I, I just mentally, I really struggled with not putting in enough work. But I mean, if, if there's horses out there like that, really in real life, I want one. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. That's awesome. Well, I want to talk a lot about, you know, the fact that you jump ride and and stuff like that. But I guess we better go back and start with, you know, your background. Did you were you raised around horses? Have you always barrel raced? And tell us a little bit about you growing up. Um, yeah, I grew up in Minnesota. My sister, who is PJ Berger, we grew up there for years. And our parents put us on ponies and we did it all from, I think I started running girls when I was like three. I have some hilarious pictures. but um, And we didn't ride just kennel ponies. So we had one pony that was like an ex-chariot racing pony. I don't know how my parents got it or where, but my dad would have to like bear hug its head and hold it down. And my mom would come over and literally just throw us on. And you didn't have time to put your feet in the stirrups or nothing. And when dad's arms... His bear claw opened up, that pony would just turn around and take off towards the barrels, and you better stay on it. And uh, that was that was kind of where it started. Um, and we just did all of it, 4-H and all the things. And even at a really young age, we, we had, like, open horse shows up there. And in the morning, they have all the Western pleasure classes, and then in the afternoon, they have the gaming classes which is the barrels and the poles and they have lots of other crazy stuff too uh almost gymkhana kind of stuff and so we did that with our ponies and um pretty cool now looking back like i was on the shetland in a western pleasure class and knew that my right lead and my left lead i mean shetlands aren't easy period and to be able to take it left lead when you need it and it's right lead when you need it and all the things is i mean i i kind of thought about that the other day that's pretty impressive because Shetlands don't do anything, and then and being a kid, five years old, knowing my leads was pretty cool. So I credit a lot of that, you know, just learning my horsemanship at a really young age. And, I mean, I did halter and, and all the things, and so I just spent hours and hours and hours with my horses and ponies and just kind of escalated from there. I mean, that is impressive, and shoot, barrel horses have nothing to runaway ponies, so no. I mean, you were prepared no. from the get-go. No. For sure, for sure. Um, did you, you know, going through high school and um, did, did you go to college? Did you rodeo through that time? Yeah, I did all the, I did Little Bridges early on. And I mean, my family and us, we had no idea what we were doing. And, and there's not a lot of, back in those days, there wasn't a lot of mentorship people. And that there's no NFR people hiding around up there. So you just kind of had to figure it out. My husband and I. We're talking about it yesterday, and I think I wrote my very first breakaway cap 54 seconds. I mean, I went round and round and round the arena until I got it, you know, and um, you just have to kind of figure it out up there. And nowadays, people, I think, are a lot more blessed with opportunity than we were back then, but um, I did the high school deal. I was pretty successful through high school. Um, I was really good at everything except goat time. We're just not going to talk about that, but uh, won the all-around uh, three years, I believe, and um, then went on to college and 
did okay in college, but I was kind of the broke kid with not a lot of money, and I just had to kind of survive through college. And I had success, but not not what I could have, I don't think. But, I mean, I was always working hard and trying to pay my bills and do all the things. And, I mean, I love my parents dearly, but I didn't get gifted a silver spoon when I left, and I had to work for everything I had. And it, times were tough, that's for sure. Did you? What did you go to college for? Um, I just did an associate degree. I went to Fort Scott, Kansas, um, and just did a two-year deal there. And it just wasn't really for me, um, so I just didn't really pursue it. After that, I had a friend that talked me into going to a Votech school, and we went to dental assisting school, so I became a dental assistant. Okay, that that's I started asking that question because we've had some listeners, you know, ask if if you weren't into horses what would you do? And I always find that really interesting. So how long did dental um, assisting last you before horses became your full-time, full-time deal? Um, I probably did it for five or six years. Um, I absolutely, had my friend not nudged me to go to school for that, I would have never picked that, you know, but once I got into it, I absolutely loved it. Uh, And Circling back, if I was younger and would have known, I would love to have shot for being a dental hygienist, but I just had no idea that that was something that would interest me. Um, and it was going to require a lot of schooling for me to go back because I would have to get all my prereqs and all the things, and it just didn't line up for me. But um, I did that for, I think, five or six years. Okay. I keep my credentials now just in case it's a backup plan. That's smart. That's, um, I know you're, you're really good friends with Emily. And when we had her on the podcast, I mean, that's what she said. She's like, yeah, during COVID, I actually still worked. <laughs> like rodeos were shut down, yeah. but I just went to the yeah. dental office. It's a great job. So what does your program look like today? Uh, honestly, if we want to say today, today, like currently our program, my program's a little small at the moment and we unfortunately are experiencing some they're widening the highway here in front of our place and we're we have to tear down one of our barns and we're rebuilding and doing some things so I'm trying to keep my numbers pretty low at the moment just because I don't have a lot of space for everything and I pick and choose what I what I can take but I mean this is probably the least amount of horses I've had in years um but I just want to make sure there's a place for everybody and everybody's safe and we've got our barn started and it shouldn't be long now we'll be back up rolling but um in general um I've got a little mix of sale horses and I think there's one tune up here um but those are kind of my two things I just the fraternity world I love it I love the people I love the competition um but I just can't get into it myself for some reason it's just not my calling in life and I respect all those girls that do it because it's absolutely amazing um so I just kind of stay away from that and and I feel like it's hard for me to get serious with any of my clients and take on fraternity horses because I do like rodeo in the summer and if you're going to be gone for two to three months you know then I'm three months behind all these other people so um I just kind of stay away from that and uh, the tune-ups and sale horses are generally kind of my big ticket so I really wanted to talk about that because I find that so interesting. I mean, yeah, like you mentioned at the start, you ride all kinds of aged horses, um, different styles. You know, you, you're taking these horses to jackpots and rodeos right off the bat. How did you kind of find that calling? And then tell us about those questions and, you know, if a, a new horse comes in, what you do to kind of mesh with it. Um, I mean, this has been a long 
journey to get where we are and I don't know how far I want to circle back but I mean I remember years and years and years ago when Jolene Montgomery um at the time Stuart we live right next door to the Judd Little Ranch and I just remember she would pull up with her six horses at the jackpot and I was this kid at the dental office and she, I mean she's younger than me but I always wanted to be her and I didn't know how to do it you know and I I started out with junk I mean junk 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 and uh but I would make them better and I would sell them and I'd get a better one and I would sell them and I just kind of kept working my way up. And I mean, I think people admire you for the try and the skill and um, it's not easy to win on junk and I somehow managed to get it done and I would get more and each year it would get better and better. And uh, I just never quit trying. I never quit trying. I still don't quit trying to be better. And uh, I don't really know how it all really escalated into selling horses and in the beginning I mean I sold the cheaper ones and and stuff that I would never touch now probably but uh, you just build a good relationship and and I think I mean I feel like if you ask down in the industry I'm known as being very honest and uh, I I want to continue to be that way and I think that just builds the following of people and I mean I remember one year I sold a mare to this girl um she bought it over the phone. I think the lady was asking like $12,000 for it. And the girl called me and told me she'd give 6500 And I was like, yeah, right. Like, this is never going to work. And I called the lady and she was going to take the offer. And I was like, what the heck? You know, well, I called the lady back and tell her, you know, she'll take your offer. But I'm just telling you, this mayor kicks in the trailer. She kicks in the stall. She hits the barrels. Like, she's just really not very much fun, you know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, that lady came and bought that horse and she won all kinds of stuff on it and I get a lot of return business from her and her friends and all the above but I mean I laid it all out on the line do not call me when all these things happen and because I was so straightforward with her I think it just made it work you know and I I just got off the phone with a potential customer earlier this morning and she's got a horse that's really nice but it just doesn't fit her and I said I think if you market it that way the general public just likes to see the truth and if you post your horse and say this is a great horse, but I don't like his stiff turning style. I prefer blah, 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 blah. Somebody else is going to jump on that. But if you ask, you know what I mean? I just think the public prefers you to lay it all out there. And I've found my most honest ads are the ones that sell the quickest. And, I mean, you can ride in there, you buck. But as long as you ride it in there, there's one person out there that's going to take that challenge. And because you called it, they're not going to be mad at you for it, you know? Yeah, I totally agree. I feel like if I don't I'm a really bad seller I'm a way better buyer <laughs> but if I do sell I mean I almost feel like I try to talk my talk them out of it because I'm like yep. I will tell you everything like yep everything good bad or indifferent and so yep. um that's funny and when you get one in I mean tell us about those questions you were talking about I mean back cinch spurs like what's kind of your rundown before you get on that horse the first time I mean, I'm a back cinch user, and I'm a firm believer that your horse ain't truly broke unless you can wear one, and I, that's probably going to burn me saying this in this interview, but I mean, there is no reason why a horse can't wear one, and I, I don't know, just the cowboy in me, I guess, wants to wear one, but I mean, I'm not going to force a horse to wear a back cinch, but I do think that there's no reason why not, but uh, usually when I get a horse in, they, I mean, I... A lot of times they come up for sale for a reason, you know, either number one, the person either is getting married or moving off or kids going to college or the things or, or somebody bought a really high end horse and couldn't keep it together. And that seems to be kind of my number one 
type of horse that ends up coming here is a horse that somebody gave a lot of money. You know, they might have bought it off a maturity trainer or all these things. Mm -hmm. And over the year, it fell apart. Well, now daddy wants his money back and it hasn't got a statistic on it in six, eight months to a year. And so um, it's just really easy for me usually to put the horse back together. Not always, but most of the time. And if I have to go back to the round pen or wherever to get that horse soft and respecting me and um, I just feel like a lot of people buy these horses and because they did give six figures, they're almost scared of ruining it, you know, so they literally pamper it and put it in a padded stall and they don't keep its routine. And, and that to me is actually ruining it. If that horse is used to getting rode by Jolene and coming out of its stall every day with a work ethic and getting soft in the face and moving all its parts, then you can't just stop doing that one day and expect that horse to run at that level forever. And, um, I just wish there would be, I've always said it, like, I think it'd be neat if somebody would do a documentary more. I, personally, I think it'd be neat in the rodeo world. And, and the amount of work that the girls at the top do that nobody really gets to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'm not talking about the wrapping legs and all the things. Cause we all do that. But there's, there's a lot of girls that get up every morning and, and exercise those horses and, and ride them more than the general public would understand um, and, and get them in the arenas and, and do the work. And again, that's why I struggled at the circuit finals because I wasn't doing the work. But um, I think the, the world needs to see, it doesn't matter if you went and bought Rolo tomorrow. If you don't know how to keep Rolo going, it's not going to work, you know, mm-hmm. and people just don't get that, I don't think. Yeah. And, you know, that's kind of one of the reasons, you know, way back when we started this podcast is, you know, I'm such a, I love the behind the scenes thing. Like that, that's cooler and, you know, more impressive to me than, you know, the highlight reel and the resume. Like, let's see how it happened. And I mean, that's the truth. Like even at the fraternities, I mean, you know, just at Pink Buckle, I think I was, I was stalled in the same row as Ryan Padone and she was on horses at 6am and she was on horses at midnight. Like, I mean, it just doesn't stop. And so, you know, to think you just go out and ride, you know, your one horse once a day um, and don't work through those things. Like, it's very impressive to see what, you know, all of you guys on the elite level truly do to keep these horses working. Yeah, and I seen Jolene, um, I think it was a Pink Buckle interview the other day, and she was talking about how when she goes to a barrel race and she's in the warm-up area, she started noticing, like, oh, my gosh, like, my horse is the only one in this warm-up sweating and I agree with her and I mean you can get a horse and like she said you don't even have to get out of a walk sometimes it's just a matter of moving all the pieces and backing them up and making their feet move and you can tire a horse's find out without tiring their body out and I'm a firm believer in that um and it's it's amazing what you can do to their mind that can get them right to perform Better horsemanship, a stronger mentality, faster and smoother runs, these are all reasons why BarrelRacing.com is the best training tool for barrel racers. Their training videos offer beginning to advanced barrel racing instruction from the most respected voices in the industry. Like 2021 WPRA World Champion Jordan Briggs, three-time World Champion Haley Kinzel, and many more top competitors. Cut time, gain confidence, and win more with our experts showing you what works. Don't forget to use promo code MONEYBARREL15 for 15% off your BarrelRacing.com membership. Whether you're shopping for a gift or for yourself, get a great deal on their exclusive training videos before you head out to ride this holiday weekend. Visit BarrelRacing.com today.
So do you kind of work more on that aspect when you get these horses in, even for like a tune-up? You know, make sure these older horses remember how to use all their body parts before you even take them to a jackpot? A hundred percent. It is mind-blowing to me. Like, some of them come in and they won't even back up. And I'm just like, oh, gosh. Like, ah. And some of them won't walk a circle, you know. they If I tip their nose at all, their butt flies out of position and and the things and and these people get frustrated because you know their tuning sessions aren't working well I don't understand how can you tune this horse I can't properly aim it at this barrel and place the speed in the turn because he won't like he's fried at the moment and most of the time within one week I can have him doing all the things um Mm -hmm. very usually pretty easily um and that's why I really started charging a monthly fee instead of just commission. That's been years and years ago because I've gotten on some horses and made them so much better that the owner wants them back, you know? <laughs> and so you're going to pay me for my time. And, Absolutely. Uh, you know, I learned that the hard way. Way, I mean, in the very, very, very beginning, I, I got some horses going back to the top and they just kind of want to come get them and that's, that's um pay the bills. No, no, you definitely need to be trained for that training time because you yep. you brought him back. Um, when you get a horse in, like, you know, I, I always struggle with this a little bit when I see people buy horses and then start changing things, you know, the bits or whatever. And I know certain bits don't fit certain hands, but with the amount of different horses you ride what what do you do? Like, do you kind of keep them in the same headgear they came in? Do you ride them for a little bit and then adjust? How does I, that work? I always, always, when somebody drops me off a horse, I mean, they might drop it off at 2. I'm going to the jackpot at 7. I, I don't want to eat. Sometimes I might get on it at the house to just make sure it's safe, you know. But yeah. I, I want to know exactly what it is they dropped off. I'm going to put their headgear on it. And I'm going to go to the jackpot and I'm going to just wing it and see what I got. And then at least when I wake up tomorrow, then I know what I need to work on. And that has been really easy. Like that just sets up my program of what direction to go. Is the horse good at the gate? You know, is he, did he shoulder me at the turn? Did he check out? Did he, you know, all the things that I know. Because if I go to fixing them first, which is nice, but then I, then I, I don't really know what I got. And I've, I shouldn't probably say this on podcasts, but a lot of people, when they call me, they'll have this horse, and let's be real, it hasn't won in six months, and they know it's a winner, but my kid can't ride it, or all the things, and and, and these are red flag words that I hear from people, and they, they always say, but we think with you on it, he could. So that doesn't reflect his price to me. If you pull in my driveway, and he's been doing these things for six months, his price is the price when he pulls in the driveway, and it's... Yeah. You know, yeah, I'm going to bust my butt. It's my job to determine what he's worth moving forward. But a lot of people don't want to price them when they pull in my driveway because they know it has fallen. You know, the wheels have fallen off the wagon. And so I I don't really like it when people approach me like that and say, well, we think with you on him, he could do all these things. Well, I do too, but what is he worth today? And then it's my job to decide in a month from now that, hey, you know, he just went up because it all came together. But uh, and a lot of people don't want to hear that, you know, yeah. and um, the best line that I kind of use for them is if they'll bring me a horse and it hasn't won anything in six months and blah, blah, blah. I, I spin it around on them and say, all right, I got a 12 year old gelding that hasn't won anything with a 14 year old girl in six months. Would you buy a jet plane ticket to fly across the country and come try this horse? And they just get speechless on me, you know, and they're like, 
Oh, yeah, I see your point. And, you know, most people want their money back, and we all do. Yeah. But we got to get your horse back to that level that it was when you were buying it. And that's, again, why they end up here, and, and usually it works. Um, and a lot of people, they say, oh, my gosh, you sell so many horses. And I really don't. Um, what they don't see is how many I send home. Yeah. Um, and the best line that somebody ever gave me years ago that allows me to sleep at night is, and this is probably not podcast worthy, but I'm going here, is at the end of the day, when someone sends me a horse, and I mean, it just, let's just say it's a barrel slammer, and I'm just struggling, and my knees had all I want, and it just isn't fun, you know, and the last thing I want to do is try to sell it to somebody else, and at the end of the day, the horse becomes my forever problem, and so the line that somebody told me years ago is at the end of the day, this horse isn't my problem. I didn't sell it to the customer. I didn't train it. I'm doing this customer a huge favor trying to get them out of this horse. Um, and then if the, the counterfeit sucker goes on to be counterfeit, he's now my problem forever. And so um, that line has resonated. I don't remember who told that to me. But when there's, I mean, I get real emotional and I feel so, I hate making that phone call to the client just being like, listen, this isn't going to work and I can't, I can't market your horse. And they, they get to backpedaling and they try to think of a lot of things of why. And, and at the end of the day, I didn't get you in this mess. It's not my job to get you out. I'm doing the best I can here, you know? So yeah. that, that really has helped me. That's the truth. And that goes back to honesty and also, you know, why people can trust you. If you're going to market something, they're going to know that you have a little bit of faith in it to go on and be successful. Like you're not just going to try to sell whatever comes into your barn, no matter what. Like, I think that's really important. And that's what I tell them. I tell them the same thing. Listen, when you call me and when you're, when you do get this horse sold and you got some money to turn around and come shop, you're going to trust me when I tell you what he is, you know, and, and I probably spend more home than I actually sell in a year, but nobody sees that, you know, and it, it just is what it is. And, and the one thing, I don't understand about some people it is a lot of people are just afraid to wholesale a horse like if you're not getting along with it and it's wrecking your kids confidence just wholesale it and move along and Mm -hmm. nobody wants to do that and I don't understand I mean get some of your money back and rock on you know but that's that's very very few people will just do that and I don't really understand why yeah, just there's no guarantees if you buy it. I mean, you could basically just count it as money gone. If you get it yep. back, great. But, like, there's no guarantee you're going to get that money back. So Mm-mm. move on. And I love it when they were like, well, I have, you know, I have 40 in it. And then we have this, this, and this, and that work, and all these. I got about 50 in it. And I'm like, you can't count the feed and the shilling. Like, that doesn't work. No, that that doesn't count. Um, no. What would... When people come to try horses, how do you work with, like, potential buyers? Because that is a topic that I feel, it's hard for people. I I feel like it's hard for people to kind of work with those potential buyers sometimes. So, I mean, like, if somebody comes in to try a horse, kind of what's your, like, normal way to let somebody try a horse? Uh, I think it's per horse situation um you know if I've got a young horse that I've only taken out in public three or four times that's probably just a horse that we're going to try at my house and Mm -hmm. and it either fits you or it don't and it you know it it means it needs exhibitions and it needs hold and that's on you you either fit it here at my house and you like it or not if I've got 
the $150,000 been there, done that rodeo horse, I'm still going to require you to meet me off-site somewhere and ride it and see if you can get along with it. We can rent an arena. I, I'm not shady about that. I don't even care if you want to rent an arena and set up timers or do the things, but I just would prefer to keep the first ride out of public for everyone's sake because you might not get along with the horse. You might, you might not. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And then I'm, I will let you go to, if you're going to spend that kind of money, I will let you go to the jackpot. Um, you know, and again, each horse is one thing. Now I've had people want to enter American qualifiers and I'm sorry, but no, you're not joy riding this horse in an American qualifier. Um, and I, I mean, every once in a while I've had someone try the rodeo, but I'd just rather not. I mean, just let's go to a jackpot where we know the times and the ground is good and, and and go from there but i'm i'm pretty flexible um i mean i feel like i could take this topic on and on and on and on but uh each situation is different but well i just wanted to ask uh, because you know a lot of people don't a lot of people are like nope not touching on it but i mean it's an important thing like you know because you have some people uh that jump on these fraternity horses and expect to go be successful the next day and i mean sometimes Uh Like, I can train one, and it's still hard to be consistent a year down the road. So it's like, you know, those those expectations are really hard when you spend a lot of money. Of course, you want to go win. Um, and so it just it's interesting to me, you know, the trying process and what goes into these older horses, you know, to try to set them up for success going forward. Yeah. And I mean, I could go into the whole marketing thing and that's like, so that's a whole nother podcast, but I've heard lately, you know, and I'm not against a deposit to try upper end horse. I am not against that at all, but I personally feel like I've heard lately, I've got some really good rodeo friends that have been shopping for horses and people are making them put pretty large deposits down just to come get on them, which I don't have a problem with. It comes out of the purchase price, whatever, but I think if you're going to require a deposit to try a horse, you need to supply me with the x-rays because if I put a thousand to 5,000 down to come try your horse and I like it and then I finally go to the vet check and it's got all these things wrong with it, you're just making pure profit. Like, so if I, if somebody ever puts me in that situation or vice versa, I think I don't have any problem with that, but I feel like the x-rays should be disclosed. If you're requiring a down you know, a down payment or, or non-refundable deposit to come try the horse. And then because you're going to view those x-rays with your vet and you're going to buy this horse if I can run it and it works and it fits me. But I mean, I just think that's kind of shady if you go try a horse and they take your deposit and then you get to the vet check and it's got 12 kissing spines and a chip in its knee and all that and they're over there like well I'm keeping your deposit well you know that's pretty crummy yeah I'd rather almost just be like here's the x-rays first tell me if you like yep. them before you even waste my time to come ride them yep and I've gotten that way I've got a couple of my own horses for sale right now and and uh, I have all the x-rays and I write that now if you want it just saves every I had a lady fly in you know last week from halfway across the country like it just to book a plane ticket, she needs to know what she's coming to try. And I just wish more people would do that. Um, I just really think it would change the industry. And I mean, I know there's horses that have issues, but put it out there. And usually if you just close, you know, it's got a spur in the hawk or whatever, people are okay with it as long as they just know it's, you know, what it is. It's, it's the shock factor of getting to the vet check and you think this horse is perfect and all these things show up, you know? Absolutely. 
So tell us about some of your favorite horses and, you know, some of those horses that you've gotten to ride and, you know, either helped propel your career or, you know, just those horses that have kind of stood out to you. Oh, number one, everybody knows my good, my old boy, Giddy. He was the cake topper of the whole bunch. And um, he was just truly the most special horse to me ever. Um, and he was mine. Um, and then I, I don't know, I've gotten to ride some pretty cool horses. Um, Baby Flash, the Don Ranch, I'm a Frenchman's princess. She's one of my favorites. She's super, super fun. And that was kind of my first um, horse to get on after a horse. You know, Troy and Jolene had both trained on her, and I will take anything they give me. I, there's something about the way their horses turn that just really fits me, and I, I love riding behind Jolene because they're just broke. And I, I, and I tell her that every time I get on something, is, is I never, ever have to go back to square one with them horses. They, they have all the buttons I need. It's my job to make it or break it around the barrels, and it's it's really fun to ride behind her and there's something about the way Troy's horses snap a barrel that just makes my mouth water and it's just really fun for me um so oh, gosh the list could go on and on I don't I don't even know where to start or stop but I've been pretty blessed in my career to get on some really neat horses will you tell us a little bit about Diddy and how he came into your life I feel like our podcast will be incomplete without a little bit more about him <laughs> Um, a really good friend of mine, Jackie Brand. Uh, she lives in Arkansas. I'd known of the horse for years. He had kind of came in and out of the scene multiple times with multiple different people, and, and he would win. Um, it was a little inconsistent just because he would hit girls, uh, but when he would win, he would beat them, you know? And uh, she had called me and left a voicemail one day about bringing him to me to sell, and I don't know. I just, I kind of thought it was maybe too good to be true or something's got to be wrong with him or, you know, like, I don't, why is this, that's her dream horse. Why would she sell it? You know, so I was, I don't know why, but I was reluctant about it. And she wasn't, she was very persistent and continued to call me. And I guess God was telling her to do the deal. And, uh, she literally showed up here one day and I didn't even ride him or anything. And, she tells me now, you know, after the fact that she brought him over here because she knew I was going to buy him. I literally, when he pulled in my drive, I just thought it was another sale horse, you know, and he was really good looking and she had him slick and black. And I mean, he looked amazing when he showed up and of course she pulled out of the driveway and I thought, well, let's go see what we got here, you know? And, uh, I mean, he went around the barrels just rank. I mean, the force that he had in the turn is stuff that you dream of, you know, and, I, I still didn't think at that point I was going to buy him. I'll be honest, I didn't. He wasn't very expensive, but I didn't really have all the money, and I just, I, at this point, was not even considering buying this horse. And I, uh, my good horse at the time had gotten hurt, and I was still entered at some circuit rodeos. And I showed up, ironically, at I think Burwell, Nebraska, was like one of my first rodeos on him, which is so ironic because it ended up being his last. But. Uh, I remember trotting around the track there, and uh, Christy Steffes came over to me, and she said, well, what are you what are you riding? And I really didn't know. You know, I was like, oh, just some horse I got in for sale. And she looked at me, and she said, I hope you know you're the only person here making money. And I didn't really know what she meant at the time. And she, I said, what do you mean? And she said, you're going to win this rodeo, and then you're going to sell that horse on Monday, and you're going to make a big chunk of change. And I was like, oh, she's not really wrong, I guess. You know, well, that's strange. You know, well, sure enough, I think he won second. Um, but that was kind of one of the runs that I thought, whoa, what am I sitting on here? Like, that was really cool, you know? And that weekend rolls right into the Kansas run, and I went over there to Hill City, and, I mean, he 
same deal. Lots of people, well, what's this horse? What's this horse? And I bet I told five people before I ran, it's a horse I have for sale. And he threw down a hell of a run. And I mean, I couldn't get out of the arena into the phone fast enough. And I called my husband and said, I don't know if we're going to have to borrow money or what, but we need this freaking horse, you know? And so I called her and I hired half the money to her right, right then. And when I came out of my trailer, there was a girl in his hot wire fence looking him over. And I said, what are you doing? And she said, well, you said the horse is for sale. And I said, get out of here. He's mine, you know? And, and I had to bet him to get the other half. And again, I, I kind of thought it was too good to be true. And I just, there was a voice in my head that something's going to be wrong with him, you know? And I mean, he vetted good and the rest is history. And I owned him. And I mean, I just, it was not easy. And everybody that knows me, my first six months with him, I hit thousands and thousands of dollars worth of barrels and uh my husband you know he was like get a whip get this do that you know whatever and, and it didn't matter if you whipped that horse it didn't change how he went into the turn and uh, i laughed because years ago my husband kind of has a cutter background and he bought me these spurs for christmas and i mean they're just not barrel racing spurs they got a shank and a rowl and the whole nine yards and he said, you need to put those spurs on him. And I was like, I was embarrassed. I'm like, I can't show up to the grocery <laughs> spurs. People are going to laugh at me, you know. And I had tried everything I could do. And I finally just, I knew every time I'd hit a barrel, it was to be stupid, stupid fast. And I think of Stevie Hillman with truck because she was the same way. I mean, she hit barrels to set arena records. And she's like, if I could just figure out how to go around them, it's on. And that, that kind of resonated with me. And so I hung those spurs on and... The rest is history. I don't know what it was about his size, but if I could put a spur in him, he'd go just about anywhere I wanted him to. That I mean, it was crazy. Do what you got to do because it worked. Yep, doesn't yep. matter what. And it I figured was. out. I was always trying to handle his head or whip his butt to get him in the turn, and it, it came out in the end. It, it, I, I use the word punch, but if I would run him over there the barrel and spur him or punch his rib cage out of it, it was all about his rib cage. If you could punch his rib cage open, you'd make the turn every time. But if he blocked you with your rib, you weren't getting there. And as soon as I figured that out, I don't know. I mean, we had clean run after clean run after clean run, and it was it was a lot of fun. So on a horse like that, I mean, I could see a lot of people just tuning on them and tuning on them mm-hmm. and slow work and tuning on them. So, I mean, how how did you make that decision that, like, hey, because you, you said, you know, you want him to work, you want him to do the slow work, you want to be able to move their body, but when he did that at a run, what made you just decide to be like, we're going to just figure it out and deal with it, versus, like, probably pick him apart and ruin him, to be honest? You know, he was so trained. I just knew I was one step away from greatness. And I, I just crossed some elimination and tried all the things until I found the thing that worked. And um, I really didn't pick him. Mean, he was doing no wrong. He was mm-hmm. just turning that hard and, and an inch too soon all the freaking time, you know. And I just knew if I could get it, it was, it was so worth it. And, um, you know, back to getting in the arena and trying the things, I – he, he taught me a lot, and I, um, in the beginning, I thought, you know, as turning as he was, I was going to stay out of the arena and not show him the barrels, and I'm going to surprise him when I get here, and he's not going to know where things are, and turns out he was backwards. I started watching my history, and I would go to these rodeos, and he would run kind of weird in round one, and I might place might not whatever but i would win round two literally win the second round every rodeo i'd go to first place i mean it just over and over and over he'd win the second round and i thought huh 
maybe. And so we got to Reno that year, and I thought, here we go. I'm going to practice, and I'm going to school him. And I, I didn't run him through practice, but I team sure let him cruise all pattern. And guess who won the first round? My horse. And so all of a sudden, this horse that I thought I was doing all the – he he did better if I could get him in there, and it was so weird, but it, it, it history proved itself true, and so there I was. I'd go to every rodeo early if I could, and I'd get in there, and if I could get in there, it didn't even matter if it was north side. If I could get in north side, I could get around the barrels, but if I had to go cold turkey, it was harder, you know, and uh, he was just always the second round champ <laughs> just again doing what you have to do knowing your horse it doing what you have yep. to do to make it work um we we've had questions from guests that you know about overcoming the lows in the sport and obviously when you lost diddy um one i don't think i've ever seen the barrel racing community pull together like they did you know to wear purple and and in his um memory but i mean obviously that had to have been one of the lowest lows of your career how how did you overcome that uh, I learned a lot about myself. I really did. I've never experienced a tragic loss in my life quite like that ever. And uh, it was very, very, it wrecked me. It, and it took me an entire year. And a lot of people don't know that. And I actually shed a tear the other day about it. You know, like it just, it's just always something that's going to be hard for me. And uh, I experienced hate and jealousy of other people and all the things. And I mean, I, just airing it out there so somebody can learn about this but I mean it, it was really hard and and it's fun to be over it now and and feel confident in God's plan and God's timing and I know I sit here horseless but I I have faith in the plan and I, I'm okay and it's all gonna work out but it, it was it was rough and I I binged ate and got fat <laughs> I mean not really but I mean I just I just wasn't in a very good place for about, for sure, for three to six months. It took me, it was really, really hard. And um, you just miss, I mean, and, and I think the hardest part for me, and my husband gets it, but he doesn't get it. Men are men. And I don't, to this day, I don't have a heart force standing on my place. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when it's a little cold or a little rainy, when I had that heart horse out there, it didn't matter. It could be sleeting in my face. I was going to the barn to pet Diddy, you know, and mm-hmm. make sure he was happy and okay. And I don't get me wrong, I take great care of everything else here, but the that emptiness of not having that. And I joked around when I got to the circuit finals of I have all this great stuff in my trailer and these back on track and PHT and Magnaway. I have all the things and I just felt like a little kid again because I know Fab wasn't my horse, but my heart was already connected to him. And it, every morning I couldn't wake up and, or fast enough to go take care of this great horse. And I miss that the most, uh, that burning desire of whatever it takes for your special, special horse. And that's the biggest hole in my heart is, is not having that. And I think that I, I can't wait to experience that again with another horse. I don't know when and where it will be, but that's, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, and, and that's why I wanted to bring it up, and I know it's a hard thing to talk about, but, you know, you either people, you know, accidents or losing their horses or anything like that, you know, a lot of times, you know, I've, like I said, we've had listeners ask, like, we always get to see the highlight reel, we always get to talk about the good things, but, like, how how do people overcome the bad things? And, I mean, you did, but a lot of people 
probably didn't know it took you time to not, you know, to not want to just be like, all right, I'm, I'm done with this. Yeah, and it was hard because, I mean, I was out there and I was in Nebraska when it happened and I had two really nice young mares with me and, I mean, all I wanted to do was go home and, and not see anybody or do, talk about it or do anything and um, my husband was like, listen, he said, I would, I, I want you home as fast as you can get here. He said, but you're going to have to drive right through Dodge city and you're going to drive through these rodeos. And he said, those mares deserve, deserve a chance, you know? And he's like, don't come home until you finish that run. And I was just like, Oh my God, no, here we go. And I mean, I did, I, I had heck. And I, I mean, I, they did, the mares did do great, but the, you know, they, they needed it and they deserved their chance. And it, it was, it was really hard, but, uh, that, that, that was probably hard. And I, I talked to Ava Gray Sanders a little. She lost her horse in a tragic accident this year, too. And it was funny because me and her both struggled with the same thing, is when you got around people afterwards, nobody wants to talk about it. They'll small talk the weather, anything but your horse. And I thought it was just me. And I wanted to talk, maybe not about the accident, but I wanted to talk about it. And Ava Gray said, it's, to her mom, she said, it's like, he never existed. When I walk in a room, it's like he never existed. People do anything to not talk about it. And that got was what got me, and that's what got her the most. And, mm. you know, it's one day they were the best horse on the planet, and the next day that nobody even mentions them. And, I mean, ooh, that's tough. That's really tough. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. Like, you don't have to talk about what happened, but, but they're still here. They're part of your story. They're part of your career. So may as well keep them alive. Yep. Well, that's it for this week. Big thanks to Ivy for giving us a sneak peek into her program. If you want to hear more, download the Patreon app on your phone today and subscribe to The Money Barrel. Don't forget to check out our partners at BarrelRacing.com and use code MONEYBARREL15 for your discount today. That's MONEYBARREL15. All right, everyone, run fast, be safe, and we'll see you soon.